Turn this afternoon to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. Before we come to our text, I would simply preface our remarks this afternoon by saying that the church and the individual Christian should be against things. We should be against things. Because to stand positively for truth and righteousness in a fallen world will inevitably bring us into conflict so that we will have to oppose sin and with it error. And that's not something that you can choose or you ought to choose to avoid. It's not something that you should desire that you would have a Christian life that you do not have to be against things. At the same time, I would caution you that we are not defined by the things that we are against. And some people recognize the call to be standing for the truth and to be opposing error, but very quickly the whole of their ministry or the whole of their testimony becomes one of protest and opposition. And the religion is really a religion with continually an angry fist. We need to be known by the things that we are for, that we are for God, we are for the Trinity, we are for Christ and him crucified, we are for the proclamation of the gospel and for the extension of his kingdom and for the good of souls and the glory of God. Now, all of those things will bring us into contention, but if we are known more for the negative contention and not for the positive proclamation, then we have an obvious problem. But then there are those, and they simply want to be positive. They want to be for things and against nothing. And so to them it is very unseemly to be protesting against things, almost in their minds, unchristian. But how we come to that conclusion from the scripture is a mystery because everywhere in the Bible, God makes it known that we, as his people, have to be against things. And one of the things that we're against in this chapter is false prophets, false prophecy, and false teaching. Look at verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy. And say unto them the prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear ye the word of the Lord. God goes on to say, I am against you. Well, this is not a unique example, is it? You'll find this again throughout Ezekiel. The watchman that will not warn when uh, judgment is coming, He's, he acts as a false witness and testimony and the blood of souls will be upon his hand. You can go throughout the rest of the prophets and you'll find them similarly contending against sin and against false prophets who lead the people of God astray. But it's not merely an Old Testament thing and somehow everyone becomes a lot 
nicer in the New Testament, but again, in the New Testament, we are exhorted to do and given examples of it being done that we are to contend against error. Perhaps most well known is Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and following. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. But this agrees with the teaching and example of the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons I'm looking at this passage with you this afternoon is that in previous weeks in our exposition of, of Luke, uh, we were looking at the tree and its fruit. And we were looking at those who said, Lord, Lord, but yet they did not do the things that, that Jesus commanded. But the parallel to Luke 6 is Matthew 7, and the tree and its fruit there is particularly applied to those who are false prophets. And Jesus begins the section in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Then he talks about discerning and identifying fruit and rejecting upon the basis of that fruit. Don't you see Old Testament, New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ, by virtue of its faithfulness to him, must be against things. We must be against things. False teaching, false prophets, anything that is contrary to the gospel, the papal anti-Christian system with all of its emissaries, if we cannot speak in terms like Galatians chapter 1 comfortably about that system, we have a problem. Let it be accursed. But with God's help this afternoon, we want to take up this subject. It's not the most appealing subject for us to look at, but it is very, very important. Consider in the first place the crisis of false prophecy or teaching. And for this, we go back to the previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 22 and following, where Ezekiel is showing the effect of false prophets. And the first thing to note here is that people lose confidence because of false prophecy so that they disregard everything. We're thinking here, verse 22, chapter 12. Son of man, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel, saying, the days are prolonged, and every vision faileth? So the, the false prophets are, are making their predictions, and the people might initially like it, but the big problem is one prediction after another prediction doesn't come to pass. And the consequence for that, for Ezekiel and, and other true prophets, is that the people look at all of these prophets as being the same. 
And so they conclude that every vision comes to nothing. They stop listening. They dismiss all prophetic claims. And God is challenging them. Stop using this proverb because there is true prophecy. Verse 23, tell them, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say unto them, the days are at hand and the effect of every vision. Do you see how widespread this problem must have been so that it took on proverbial dimensions in the church of Christ? People are disregarding everything. But then there's another thing here. Because of false prophecy, the people lack concern, and so they delay everything. Verse 27, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he seeth is for many days to come, and he prophesieth of the times that are far off. Well, these predictions might be true, but they're not relevant to us today. Therefore, it doesn't really affect how we live. They're prophesying destruction. We have peace in our time. A little bit like Chamberlain going over to meet with Hitler in 1938. And he comes back saying to everybody, well, you know, we've got all that sorted. And the people in the British Parliament are thinking, you, you must be crazy. Nothing sorted. We have peace in our time. A couple of months later, and Hitler invades Poland. War begins. These people are saying, no, we don't need to worry about these things today. These unsavory truths. Well, that's, that, that's for a time well down the road. But as for us, everything is fine in our day. And God again says, no, you're wrong. I will delay no more, but I will do all that my prophets have said. So what I want you to see here is that false prophecy is undermining the word of God in both of these ways and giving men an excuse to shut their ears against the truth. It's devastating. Well, consider our day. And out in the world, we have the pseudo-spirituality that has become so popular. And it's a very clever ploy of the devil. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, people may have been more proud in their atheism. They were all rationalists and science was the answer to everything. But not today. A lot of people have got fashionably spiritual. And so you go out to speak to them about Christianity and they might think, well, you know, that's cool. I'm religious as well. It's a pseudo-spirituality where people take an eclectic mix of all kinds of false teaching and then they think that they're safe because they're spiritual and they don't have to listen to the clear word of the living God. You've encountered that, haven't you? It's the pseudo-spirituality of pagan false prophecy. But then we bring it into the church and we have multitudes of people who claim to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and they are deliberately hiding the word of God so that they might give to men what men want. Prophet Jeremiah complained about this. The prophets 
prophesy smooth things, and my people love to have it so. Paul warns Timothy, preach the word Timothy, because the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves, teachers having itching ears, and they will turn away from the truth. They'll want preachers who tell them what they want to hear, not what God has revealed in his word. We have an army of TV charlatan preachers who have destroyed souls over decades. We have cults that have multiplied in the last 200 years in this nation, destroying the souls of men, making vain predictions of what will happen. And every one of them has, has fallen or has been proved false. With what effect? That many lump it all together. They make no distinction. They become cynical so as to have no confidence in one who will stand up and endeavor to preach the word of God. The picture here at the end of chapter 12 is the spread of this confusion, breeding cynicism, which aids men resting in a false comfort so that they close their ears even when they are in reach of the truth of God. You see that if you go back to the beginning of chapter 12, verse 2. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. For they are a rebellious house. And key to their deafness and blindness was the ministry of false prophets. The crisis of false prophecy or teaching. Then consider secondly the content of false prophecy or teaching. And this comes out in, in chapter 13 where Ezekiel deals first of all in verse 1 through 16 with male false prophets and then from verse 17 through 23 with female false prophets. And there are some differences in what he describes, but the similarities are key. And they have to do ultimately with content. Consider here, first of all, the origin of their message. Where does this false prophecy come from? Well, both men and women who are masquerading as prophets here are exposed as speaking nothing but that which is from their own heart and imagination. So take the men to begin with. Verse 2, verse 3. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. And you'll find the same when you go to look at the women in verse 17. Likewise, thou son of man, set thy face against the daughters of thy people, which prophesy out of their own heart, and prophesy thou against them. So they're claiming that their message is from God. Verse 6 and 7 is an example of that. We come to you speaking in his name, but God says, no, they don't represent me. They don't speak for me. 
They speak out of the imagination of their own minds. Brethren, that's the origin of all false teaching. It's the heart of sinful man, not the mind of the God of truth. And its purpose is to serve sinful men rather than to be faithful to Almighty God. The origin of their message. But then consider the description of their message. Four times in the first half of this chapter, God describes their message as lying vanity. Look at verse 4. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the desert. Ye have gone up into the gaps, or sorry. Verse 6. They have seen vanity and lying divination, saith the Lord. Verse 7. Have ye not seen a vain vision? And have ye not spoken a lying divination? You'll get it in verse 8, verse 9. You go to consider the women, verse 19, verse 22. Lies and vanity. So God is saying to us here that what they teach in summary is on the first hand false. And secondly, it is empty. But he makes it more particular when we come to verse 10. Because at the heart of this lying vanity, they are preaching peace when there is no peace. Do you see that? Because even because they have seduced my people saying peace and there was no peace. Very particular. God has said that he is going to bring judgment and that he will destroy. And these people are lying and they're saying no God is promising peace. It's very important. Because ultimately peace is a gospel term, isn't it? And peace is that which is given to us by God through Jesus Christ. There's no peace to the wicked. All of God's judgment is judgment against sin. All of God's peace is a result of God's grace. And we can take this principle into our own day. And do we not find at the very heart of all false teaching is a blurring of the gospel of the grace of God. It's all designed to assault the Lord Jesus Christ. And so men come claiming to speak from God, but they speak out of their own heart. They, 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 they teach lies and emptiness to the people. And so you review again the last few centuries, you see this, don't you? Take classic liberalism about a hundred years ago. Did they say they weren't Christian? Did they say they weren't trying to preach the word of God? Did they suddenly get out of pulpits and leave the church and say we're something different? No. Machen had to write his book, Trace Christianity and Liberalism, saying, this is actually another religion. Another religion that has infiltrated the Christian church. But they didn't think that. But they got busy destroying the word of God by their academic criticism and having cut up God's word, still with the Bible in their hand, 
they go on to invent, invent their own truth by nothing more than their own authority. And so generations have perished under their declaration of lying vanities, and we have it right up to today. They're heirs. They might not have the same method, but they have the same problem. Smiling-faced, soft-spoken, outwardly kind and winsome, people in pulpits who will not preach Christ and rather than declare God's truth against sin, they affirm every cultural sin under the sun. But it's just lying vanity from their own hearts. But then we can come closer, not just that liberalism, which is a good way away from us, but we see it in evangelicalism too, don't we? What has happened there over the last 50 years or so? Everything became seeker-sensitive. All of the preaching, rather than becoming evangelical, became therapeutic, and the whole desire is to preach what? Peace! Peace! We want people to know peace. We want people to have help with their problems. We don't want people to be unhappy. They want to talk a lot about Jesus, but they don't want to talk about sin. You will not hear about repentance and obedience. And you'll hear a lot about heaven and happiness, but you will not hear anything about hell. That's the equivalent principle of Old Testament false prophecy. They don't have to come with predictions. They don't have to pretend to foretell things. What is happening here? The problem is a declaration of peace when God has promised destruction. It's giving people a false hope, false confidence. We can come even closer. Let me make a distinction. There are those who are categorically false prophets. But yet a spirit of error, a spirit of false prophecy can even infiltrate churches which are orthodox and good. You say, how? How can that happen? Well, when you have those who appear to be theologically orthodox preaching in a way that leaves an impression of peace when there is no peace. So you go to church every week, we're the covenant people of God, we're all baptized, we're all Christians, and no one is disturbed. Tell me what that is if it is not a modern expression of this same problem where ministers are saying peace. Well, there's no peace. This kind of presumptive preaching, which the devil can cunningly use to lead countless numbers of people sitting in Orthodox churches to a false sense of safety and assurance, and yet they're walking a tightrope over hell itself.
Is there anything more perfect for Satan to have people lost with the very truth of God in their hands? I remember back in Scotland, one of my older members, he, he would visit a church when he went down into the south of England. And the first few times he went to that church, you know, he was impressed. Well, how was the preaching? Preaching was good. We heard about Jesus, the cross, so on. And he kept going down, visit family and friends. And he came back and he said, there's a big problem down there. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you hear about the cross, you hear about forgiveness, but you never hear about sin. Now, this was a Reformed church. You never hear about sin. You hear about glory and heaven and the world to come, and the blessedness of believers, but you never hear about hell. And so this man, if you knew him, he's quite a character, um, can be a blunt instrument at times. And he challenged the minister at the door. And he says, why, why do you never preach against sin? Why, do you, wh why is there not a dominant call for repentance? Why are these people not hearing about hell? And the minister said, well, I'm committed to preaching a positive gospel. My dear brother nearly exploded. He says, what are you describing is half a gospel. It's not a positive gospel. It's half a gospel. And it has the tendency, don't you see, to preach peace, peace. God comes and says, I am against you. I am against you. You need to prepare to meet your God. And if preachers will not preach it, they have succumbed to this spirit of proclaiming peace where there is no peace. Thirdly, we have the character of false prophets or teachers. And the Lord paints for us a very vivid portrait of these men in these verses. And I want to divide it into four things. The first is that these false prophets are callous scavengers. Verse 4, O Israel, thy prophets are like foxes in the deserts. What's he talking about? Well, the image is one of destruction. It's like the Old Testament church has been destroyed and, and it's been left as a wasteland. And these false prophets come in like the foxes that scavenged upon the destruction. What a picture. The church of Jesus Christ is being destroyed. And what are these men doing? They are eating the destruction of the church. They have no concern for the glory of God or for the souls of men. Secondly, they're cowardly soldiers. Verse 5, he have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up a hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Now the picture is of the city under siege. The city has walls and there are breaches in the walls. And what would be uh, the most important thing for those within the city to do at that time would be immediately to go 
where the breach is and try to fix that wall so that the enemy cannot invade. God is saying, this is what was required from my prophets, but what have you done? You haven't gone to stand in the gap. To go to that point in the wall, of course, would take your bravest men because the enemy's going to try and flood the city at that point. But I looked for one and there was none. Why? Because they're only speaking in their own name. They're only concerned to serve themselves. But when it comes to Christ's name, when it comes to his church, when it comes to the real spiritual good of his people, they're nowhere to be found. And they aid the destruction of the cause and all who, were th who are within the city. Cowardly soldiers. Thirdly, they're cowboy builders, verse 10 through 15. They pretend to build a wall. And God says, your wall is pathetic. And the reason that your wall is pathetic is that you haven't used tempered cement in your building. And so you go up and you pretend that you're doing this great job. Like you would hire someone, come to your house, you want to have an extension put on, and they say, yeah, we'll do the extension, and up it goes, and it looks good until you actually look at it, and you realize that the whole thing is terribly built. They're just putting stone upon stone with no water or with no mortar. Nothing is stuck together. If there are any cracks, they'll just proverbially paper over the crack and paint it rather than actually fix the thing. And God says, your wall, your wall is going to fall. This is on the back of him saying, you proclaim peace when there is no peace. You're like builders who build a wall with untempered mortar. And it all looks great until judgment comes. And then God is going to obliterate this wall. Is it not sad to consider that many pulpits across this land today are doing just this? You have men who are daubing a wall with untempered mortar. And God's saying, I see your wall, but I'm going to come with a storm of hailstone. I'm going to come with a wind. I'm going to pour out judgment upon this wall, and it's going to be destroyed. To change the image, when God says to a people that they shall surely die, The watchman does not stand and blow the trumpet. It's the untempered wall. And God will come in his judgment and he will destroy. And these watchmen who had the privilege of standing before their peers to preach God's truth and they did not, God is going to come and find them and ask them for an account of the blood of all the souls that were under their care.
ever earners. Verse 18 to 19, strange picture here of the women who were prophesying. They take pillows and they sew them to their armpits. What's that talking about? Well, some commentators refer to it being a symbol of ease. The pillow was put under the arm and they would rest upon the pillow. So they're preaching ease and peace, but they're also, they're making a trade of this. They go around uh, selling these pillows for their own gain. They're addressing right questions. They're talking about righteousness and wickedness. But the problem is they've turned everything upside down. And God says, why is it that you make the righteous sad and you make the wicked comfortable? I'm going to come and I'm going to make the righteous glad and I'm going to make the wicked uncomfortable. Do you see the character here as God sets it before us? Let me ask you a question. Are these nice people? Are these nice people? Now you go out and you meet them and, and they might appear, appear pleasant to you. Are they nice people? A thousand times no, they are not. They are liars and they are everything that we have described in this point. Callous scavengers, cowardly soldiers, cowboy builders, clever earners. They are all of this in the eyes of God. They're not motivated for the glory of God or the good of souls. They are set to the dishonor of souls and that dishonor of God and the souls of men. And I want you before God to get this fixed in your minds today. Because sometimes we smirk and we laugh about it. And we say, oh, these people right here and this crazy guy's preaching that and this church is doing this. This is, this is really serious before the Lord. You see all this liberal stuff that's going on in the mainline churches? God hates it. He hates it. You see all the false doctrine and, and, and damning heresy of the Roman Catholic Church? God hates it. Why don't Reformed Christians hate it? Why do people feel uncomfortable when you speak in this language about it? Oh, here's a Protestant and he's just Pope bashing again. It's not about that. If any man preach any other gospel than that which we have received, let him go to hell. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And we have prominent reformed theologians calling together. And, and it's like, well, you know, I don't really know what to do with Roman Catholicism. They're right on the doctrine of God. And I look at evangelicalism and they're not right in the doctrine of God. I don't know what to do with Roman Catholicism. They're wrong in the gospel. It's abundantly clear what you should do with it. You should do what our forefathers did. And for the glory of God and the good of souls and everyone who is connected with it, 
recognize that you should prophesy against it. And all of these mega pastors and you don't need me to go into it today. You know it yourself. We need to be willing to walk closely with Christ, to call these things out, to expose them, and to warn the souls of men against them. Fourthly, the conclusion of false prophets and teachers. Verse 9. God says three things, and mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and the divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord God. God's hand of judgment will be upon them. Verse 9, they won't be in the assembly of God's people. They won't be written in Israel. Both of these things refer to non-inclusion in the church. They will be struck off by a divine excommunication. They will not enter into the land of Canaan. Maybe a reference to their existing there already or returning after captivity. But they're going to be blotted out of the land of promise. That much is clear. But what does that mean for us today? It means that those who are false prophets must be marked, avoided, put out of the church, and disciplined for the glory of God and for the good of souls. Officially. For centuries, the church has repeated this mistake of tolerating false prophets within her ranks. Oh, it wouldn't be nice to discipline them. The church has been ruined as a result. But let me make it personal to you. Because you know where sometimes the greatest false prophet lives? In your own heart. What do I mean? Well, before God, I can say that I genuinely endeavor to preach God's word to you. And no man will get everything right because he's, he's a, a fallible man. But he must strive to be faithful to the word of God and to your souls. Right? So you hear the truth of God. What do you do with it? You leave church and begin to preach false doctrine to yourself. A little bit like the end of chapter 12. You say, all oh, these things, they're for a time way down in the future. These are for many days to come. And you begin to act the false prophet within your own heart. Do you know what you need to do with that spirit of false prophecy within your own heart? You need to excommunicate it. You need to kick it out. You need to put it away from you because it's the very thing that will damn your soul in hell. It will tell you peace, peace, when you have no peace. Run from it. And listen to the voice of the word of God. False teachers, unless they repent, will not only be put out of the church on earth, 
but according to these truths they will be excluded from God's heaven, which again is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Beware of false prophets. What will they do? There'll be many of them. They'll come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Christ will say, who are you? I don't know you. Go to hell. Depart from me. They'll be put out of God's presence forever. The last thing that false teachers do is they warn us here from this passage that we are to preach the truth after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the beginning of our service, we read from Revelation chapter 1, where we see that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. And you study his life, and he preached the word of God unashamedly, and he hid nothing that was good from people, and he tackled sin head on, and he spoke the word of God before kings and before religious leaders, and he did not withhold. Psalm 40, I never did within my heart conceal thy righteousness. His whole life in doing the will of God was to preach his word in the great congregation and assembly of God's people and to hold nothing back. And the apostles continue it. Paul says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so it must be in the church today where we see error. We should hold even more closely to the truth. We should preach like Christ. And at the heart of all true preaching, we will preach Christ. And we will preach peace to men. But not when God says that there is no peace. We will proclaim the gospel of peace, which tells men that they're lost in sin, condemned and headed for hell. But Jesus Christ, by his blood, has made atonement for sinners. Come to him. And that's where you will find peace. Instead of being these callous scavengers and cowardly soldiers and cowboy builders, what will we be? We will be those who are determined in faithfulness to God to build upon the ruins of the walls of Zion, not scavenge upon them. To run to the breach in the wall. Stand in the gap. Instead of making spoil of God's people, we ought to be motivated like the apostle to spend and be spent that the truth of the gospel of Christ would be preached freely and clearly unto all who hear. We are against things, brethren, and we must be against false prophets and false teachers that stand for prayer. Our God and our Father, Satan is always counterfeiting. He's a liar and the father of lies. He moves people to destroy themselves and others by the promotion of lying vanities. But we thank you that your word is truth and it's not vain. 
It is sure. It has substance. These words are spirit and life. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would deliver us from error, from going the way that so many of Reformed churches and denominations have gone in the last three, four hundred years. We are not immune to this, O oh God. Preserve and keep us. Grant that we would hold fast, that we would be willing to preach truth for the glory of God and the good of the souls of men. And as part of that preaching, that we would be willing to speak against the false prophets who hunt the souls of your people. Lord, we thank you that ultimately you hunt them and we ask that you would preserve and keep us. Keep us looking to Christ and keep us preaching like Christ and preaching Christ himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.